Okay. My sermon has a first name. It's O-S-C-A-R. My sermon has a second name. It's M-A-Y-E-R. Just kidding. So if you want to experience happiness today, go home after this. This isn't going to help. No, just kidding. Go home after this and go into YouTube and type in Oscar Mayer 1984. And you will experience happiness. But joy, joy is something that goes deeper, doesn't it? Today our uh, sermon is called Joy for the Barren. God in Unexpected People. I mentioned um, last week while I was hosting that I often find myself wondering if God has this deep sense of irony. Um, I know he has a sense of irony, but how deep is it? This is the week for joy, and I'm preaching. (laughs) And for me, that's funny, because for the uh, past four years, I've struggled with joy. Um, I lost my career to um, various issues of disability and mental instability. I've often felt hopeless these past four years and angry, joyless at times, uh, for much of the time. And here I am about to preach to you about joy. This is exactly how God works. Henry Nouwen once said, The great illusion of leadership is to think that man can be led out of the desert by someone who has never been there. In other words, who can take away suffering without entering it? During those four years, I cannot number the times I have said, but what about joy? Aren't we promised joy? Why do I feel so dry? And empty, miserable, like a desert land, like a barren womb. And it really shook me and my faith in God. I couldn't see hope of ever producing fruit again. And aren't I allowed to go to Jesus and hold up his promise and shake it in his face? Well, I did that. I don't know if I'm allowed. Um, I did that. I went and I held it up. And I said, you told us we would have joy to the fullest. That no one could ever take it away. Rivers of living water would flow out of us. Out of me. (laughs) Really, it was about me. You said... You said that if I abide in you, that my joy would be complete. I was very indignant, and I was not very noble, not calm, not respectful at times, losing the reverent fear of God, for sure, which can be dangerous. 
I used words I wish I could take back, even some swear words. Eventually, I was done. I'm done. Well, was I done? I mean, there's times, there's moments. (laughs) I began to question my own existence. Like, why did you make me then, if only to bring me here? If only to crush me into rubble beyond what I can bear? I'm just a shell of a person now. I've got nothing left. All the things I used to hold really tightly just started to crumble in my fingers. All my little pockets of fleeting joy, pleasure began to dissolve before my eyes. My sports and obsessive exercise, my job as a pilot, my pride about going on disability, my health, my manliness started to cry a lot, talk about emotions more than anyone really that I know. (laughs) My sense of identity, my friendships withered. Did I mention my pride? My talents, my addictions failed to do their jobs. My pride, my Netflix, my alcohol, my pornography, all of them lost their ability to keep me going, to satisfy. I thought, I have nothing left. How does one really hope in God? God led me out into the into the desert, into a barren land. And then he said, Sing, O barren one. You who did not bear, bring forth into singing, break forth into singing and cry aloud. You have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. How? This is the beginning of a passage in Isaiah, and it's referencing the nation of Israel. Israel is called the barren woman as she's taken into exile in Babylon. The passage goes on to prophesy a new covenant, a promise the people would have with Jesus, how he would become the child of that promise. And it would be given to a barren nation. Now, I was very undignified in how I suffered. I was embarrassed about it, and then I would rage again. And then I was embarrassed about it, and then I would rage again. But eventually, I did begin to calm. At the end of myself, when I reached that point, when I submit, he gives me peace. And years passed, and there are still moments, but the years passed. I may be young still, but I'm learning to wait. I have learned how much I have to learn. Wait for the Lord. Be courageous and let your heart be strong. Wait for the Lord. And in those days and weeks of waiting, I read and reread those passages where Jesus says to abide in him, that we might have his joy, 
And it struck me. It's his joy that we want, isn't it? Not our joy. Not my joy. My joy is for earthly things, pleasures, escapes from reality, which if they are worshipped as an end in themselves, they become disconnected, and I become incredibly alone. They implode on themselves. My joys may not be wrong in themselves, for God gives good things to those he loves. But if they are disordered, they can become ultimate, and they can take God's place. Do you know what he says in those passages that I never wanted to see? Jesus says in the upper room to his disciples, Obey my commandments. If you obey, you will have my joy. Joy is a result of obedience. And what was his commandment? To love one another as he loved me. To find God in unexpected people. So out there in the wilderness, I realized I did have one thing, Jesus. I still had him somehow, as though he had come here before me, as, the, as though he had suffered this for me. I didn't have anywhere else to turn, so I clung to Jesus. And when I couldn't hang on anymore, he carried me. I took hope in the fact that my story fits the story of the Bible. God uses people who are lowly, who are broken, who are unexpected. He takes us first, not into paradise, but into the barren parts of our stories. The places we would avoid at all costs that could never contain joy, And with great compassion, gentleness, and mercy, Jesus redeems those stories. Though the weeping may last for the night, joy comes in the morning. Today we are continuing this Advent series, God in the Unexpected, and we're getting closer now to the big event. With each passing day, week, and month, Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Something is happening in us and out there in the world. Something is approaching. Or should I say someone? His name is God with us. Emmanuel. Jesus. The Prince of Peace. In many ways, he's already here, but we must continue to reorient ourselves to his approach. That he approaches us. He knocks at the door of our hearts. Last week, we heard how there was no room for him at the inn. And so Jesus was born in the barren place. Will we give Jesus access to the barren places inside of us to be born. The thing we call Advent is about the coming of Jesus, that he came here to this earth 
to call the works of his hand very good, to say we were worth saving. And the advent is still true because Jesus is still coming. The second coming of Christ is an advent. At first glance, if I'm inspecting our Advent story, probing it for people just like me, for unexpected people, I can't help but notice the pregnant women. Because they're just like me. As we all know, pregnancy is something very hard to hide. It's something common, but it's also miraculous. It's a common, visible miracle. Of course, a woman might be able to hide it for a little while, but by the end, it becomes very difficult indeed, very clear what they are carrying. I just lost my place here. Pregnancy is meant to be a a time of profound blessing and gratitude in the midst of uncomfortable change and pain. But sadly, in this fallen world, it can also mean shame and dishonor, depending on how the pregnancy comes to pass and what family or country it happens. The two pregnant women in our Advent story are Mary and Elizabeth, and they are both unexpected people to be pregnant. Let's start with Elizabeth, the woman who becomes the mother of John the Baptist. A woman who becomes a mother. An identity shift. Now, Elizabeth is characterized as an upright woman, a righteous woman who follows the law, but who is also barren and getting on in years. Her husband, Zechariah, was a Levitical priest, and together they represent the law in some ways, preparing the way of the Lord. They were both old, but for some strange reason, against all hope, they still hoped for a child. I use that statement, hoping against all hope, because it's a statement used in the story of Abraham, the father of faith, the father of their faith. God had said to him, Your descendants will be as many as the stars in the heavens. Even though he was old beyond his years, his body as good as dead, and his wife also barren, they too were promised a child. It says Abraham hoped against all hope, and born to him was the child of promise, Isaac, who would become the father of the nation of Israel. So Elizabeth now and her husband Zachariah, they'd continued to pray for a child, even though their hearts were failing, as they watched their bodies do the same. Did you know that the name Zachariah means the Lord remembers? Neither did I until I Googled it. (laughs) And lo and behold, the angel of the Lord Gabriel appeared to Zachariah in the holy place of the temple, and said, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. 
And Gabriel went on to explain the good news that his son would pave the way for the people of God in the power of Elijah. Just as the law prepared the people to know their sin and prepared them for Jesus, so was John to prepare them. And Zechariah, he responded quite delicately, I think. Uh, so how am I going to know this? How shall I know this? For I'm an, old, I'm an old man, and my wife, she's advanced in years, he says. That's what he said to Gabriel. Um, I like how he's, he's fine like saying, I'm an old bag of bones, but my wife, she's advanced in years. Even here. He knows not to call his wife old. I thought that should be noted. And so, because of his disbelief that his own prayer would be answered, his own prayer, Zechariah was made mute, as if the prayer he'd been praying all along was silent. It's as though for the duration of the pregnancy, his mouth would no longer produce fruit as though his wife's barrenness of womb would be transferred to his mouth. As she became more and more full of joy and expectance and hope, he could only be silent and remember. Now on the surface, if this story was taken out of the context of the Bible, it would appear, I think, strange and a little harsh. But this story belongs in a collection of stories the stories of Israel. And Zechariah knew this, rest assured. He was a priest. I think this is partly why the angel of the Lord is so disappointed with him. Do you know what nation you're a part of? Have you forgotten the history of your own people? A people of promise. A people who should believe that the barren can give birth. And that each time it happens, it points to freedom, to the Messiah. Let's check out this quote from a Christian writer, Carolyn Smiley. Bringing us from the beginning of this barrenness, in the fall of the Garden of Eden, and mapping it forward. Even after the rebellion of Adam and Eve, in the midst of the curse of death, we hear the first whisper of good news. And I will interject, this first whisper of good news, many Christian writers will say is the first advent of Christmas. God promises that a child of Eve will crush the serpent, though not without pain for both the mother and the child. As the carnage of the curse and the plan for the promised child unfold throughout the New Testament, we see his lineage marked by barrenness, impossibility, and pain. The promise to Abraham isn't just to him, but also to his barren wife, Sarah. The curse is then passed on to the also barren Rebecca, to the unwanted Leah, to the widowed and rejected Tamar. From there, it's passed to the prostitute Rahab, to the widowed and childless Ruth, to Bathsheba, wife to a murdered husband and mother of a dead child. And this is just the line of Jesus. The symbol of the barren woman does not end there, surprisingly, but goes deeper. 
It's related not only to us as people, but to the earth as well, all of creation. It says in Romans, all of creation was subject to futility in hope of Jesus. It's as though sin was like a pregnancy that did not lead lead to life, but to death. All that work and pain only leading to death. Futile. We see this barrenness represented by the desert the Israelites crossed after freedom from Egypt. Freedom into this, they said? Is into this barrenness? It's as though we all must face our barrenness before becoming ready to receive his joy. A joy that will not be shaken. Now from those echoes of barrenness throughout the Bible, we come to our second pregnant woman, the unexpected Mary. Mary was a relative of Elizabeth and also an unexpected uh, person to carry a child. I think... As a qualifier, pretty much anyone is uh, an unexpected choice to carry the Son of God. (laughs) To house the fullness of the deity inside them. And all of us who have asked Jesus into our hearts in some way or another enter Mary's journey of saying yes. That the fullness of God in Jesus was pleased to dwell. So it was in Mary so it is in us. Like Zechariah, Mary too asked, how shall this be? But instead of doubting, she is, instead was asking, how is it going to happen? What's the plan? Mary was not royalty. The king of kings didn't come to live in a queen. Gabriel didn't come to a castle. She was not wealthy She was a teenager, most likely younger than 16. Maybe she was young enough to believe. She had no grounds to say she had earned this right to receive God. Unlike her cousin or her relative Elizabeth, she was not married to a Levitical priest. In fact, she's not married at all. She's not in the line of David. She has no track record of following the law and being righteous herself. Instead, she represents the gift of grace, the fulfillment of God's promise. It's his story. Mary was humble in character, lowly and meek. And I want to reclaim the word humble because we often, we look at great people and if they don't act like they're really, really rich, we say they're humble. The word humble means not great, low. That's why we say humble in a state, humble estate. That's what the word means. It means ready to accept humiliation. Those words are intimately connected. Mary was ready to accept humiliation because of the call of God. How many of us are ready if he, if he calls us to that. She was ready to become pregnant when she was not married, to be ridiculed and subject to reproach. And it's a little sketchy now, but this is 2,000 years ago. It was really sketchy then. 
She's ready to risk her entire life to suffer total disgrace at a word. When the word humble is used as a verb, as in Mary humbled herself, it means to lower yourself in importance and dignity. Mary was low enough to believe Gabriel. Her question to him was, how shall this be as I'm a virgin? She understood just enough of the birds and the bees to ask this question. For a while, I used to think, this is the same question that Zachariah asked. So didn't she have the same doubt? Why is Mary praised and Zachariah mute? Um, I think the difference lies partly here. Zachariah was married. He was under the oath of marriage. He knew how babies were made, and he was able to go into his wife in their marriage bed in faith to respond to the angel. Instead, he's asking for another sign, surprised that God would answer his specific prayer. The ones he'd been praying for years. How will I know, he said, even though stories of barren women fill the scriptures of which he himself was a priest. Mary was unaware and unlearned, perhaps, of the scriptures. She had not been praying to house the Godhead for years, I can assure you, but instead, perhaps, only to be used by him, however he chose. Possibly because of that childlike faith given to her as a gift, she was able to believe in something that has never happened and will never happen again. A virgin birth. Mary's question was qualitatively different because by asking, how shall I become pregnant since I'm a virgin, she's saying, I know it will, be, it will come to pass, but how? She's not so proud as to think she knew better, that she could speak back to Gabriel and debate the historical possibility of God choosing her or the risk the problems. This shocked me this week. You see, I've always thought that to be faithful, I must be sure and confident, and I must be outwardly strong and bold. But if we look at Mary, we see the true kind of courage is to submit, is to say we can't possibly know the plans God has for us, while at the same time, saying, yes, use us, Lord, however we will, however you will. So Mary responded by saying, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary chose to accept the possibility that Joseph would divorce her quietly, that all who saw her, they would see her as the adulterer, betrayer of the covenant of marriage, carrying the shame of many women before her, carrying the shame of Tamar, who posed as a prostitute to become pregnant, and Rahab, who was a prostitute. She was carrying the shame of women that the fall itself might begin to be redeemed. Eve was and still is often blamed for the fall in the garden. People say she was first tempted by the serpent, as though she was easily deceived. She first ate of the apple, didn't she? 
But here, in this story, in Mary's story, we see God first revealing his plan for salvation to whom? To a child on the verge of being a woman, a virgin like Eve, who had all her faculties of choice, who could have chosen deception or doubt, but instead chose to believe in the truth of coming redemption. Mary is unexpected. This path towards joy, the promise that Jesus would crush the head of the serpent, which began in the fall in the garden and rose towards Advent in Mary's courageous yes, always points strangely to the cross. Jesus did not make his own personal happiness his pursuit. If his goal was joy, then it was joy that came through the cross. In Hebrews, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The cross is where these two symbols meet. The symbols of Elizabeth and Mary, the barren birth and the virgin birth, the child of the law and the child of promise. Jesus the stainless one who fulfilled the law on the cross. The cross is the most barren place. It's the place that most assuredly never produced life. Before Jesus, the cross represented the womb of all sin that only produced death. The cross is a picture of how human beings treat their neighbor how they try to deal with justice themselves. Just as we saw last week how Jesus' birth, light into darkness, revealed the deep evil of Herod, we see in Jesus' death him revealing the sin of all mankind. Jesus came so that he revealed to us our sin and then he took it on himself the wrath of God on himself. He came so that you and I could be set free from a pregnancy of futile, pointless suffering that leads to death. All of us were pregnant with sin, which leads to death, barren of good fruit. But Jesus saw the joy that was set before him. He saw you and he saw me. We were his joy. And when he calls us by name, when, we, when he knocks on the door of our heart and we answer, we too have access to that same joy. You are my joy when I'm in Christ. When the same grace that was extended to me is extended to more and more of you, I can experience the same joy. When I'm feeling miserable and have listened again to the lies of the enemy that I should isolate, that I deserve better treatment, that God should give me what I want, what I'm desperate for, for that one thing that I need in order to feel joy, then I know I must turn again to the cross. Joy is not a ransom I hold against God to get what I want. Joy comes when I obey him and the call he has on my life. 
It is in that place of emptiness on the cross that God worked salvation for all of us. And it is in your place of emptiness, in that desperate place, that God wants to bring you fruit and life, unexpected joy and unexpected people. Not life for yourself to bury away, but life to be formed and born, delivered and shared. I'm not the person I was when this journey began. I don't know how the old me would have responded when listening to what I'm saying. Obedience? The word obedience was like, no. I I don't think I would have recognized me, but I have tasted that joy. And when you taste it, everything behind you begins to fade. And so I press on to make Jesus my own because he has made me his own. I've been given blessing upon blessing in this period of barrenness. I've been given a wife and a child of my own. And both of them, as soon as I received them, I realized they weren't mine. I don't own them. They are his. And I am his. The dreams of my daughter's little heart are Jesus' greatest pursuit and joy to draw her to himself, and I get to help. The dreams of your heart are Jesus' greatest pursuit as well. Jesus' death on the cross makes you clean again, makes you like Mary, white as snow, to house God. We are the bride that he seeks We are the bride of promise. We're betrothed to him, just as Mary was to Joseph. Sing, you barren people. Shout for joy. We are unexpected people to be pregnant now with life. In pain at times, yes. But knowing that pain of this labor will produce life. Rivers of living water just as he promised. We must only be courageous. We must wait and wade with him through the delivery. There is joy to be had here that cannot be shaken. There is joy that comes in the morning. Let's pray. Jesus, We love you. I pray in this season that you would break forth, break through all of our defenses and bring us this strange thing that cannot be shaken. That your cross, your cross would be a a symbol on our heart a symbol of freedom from the old way. We thank you so much. In your name we pray, amen.